Before we get started, today is the release of the No More Wasted Days podcast. I'm so excited about this podcast and the opportunity to be a co-host. We're sharing valuable insights and strategies for folks no matter where they are on their alcohol-free journey. Go check it out. You know, even if you are a social worker or you are a, I don't know, a CEO or you're really high up that you can still struggle and that's okay. Because I think there's the stigma of, well, I don't think I know that there's the stigma that, you know, only lower class or people in poverty or people on social assistance struggle. And that's just not the truth. Welcome to Living My Breastless Life podcast. I'm your host, HPG. On season three of the podcast, we're diving in to the helping profession. I have found that almost always there's a catalytic event that leads people to help others. You'll hear a variety of folks share what they do, why they do it, and the unique ways that they help. This season will mostly be guest interviews with some fascinating people and a few surprises for y'all along the way. So let's go. Go. episode 52, I got to chat with Jacqueline, who is the host of Doom to Bloom podcast, a fellow social worker, and a mental health advocate. Jacqueline is an amazing human, and I'm glad to call her my friend as we have connected through the podcasting world. I loved my chat with Jacqueline, and I think you will too. Tell us, Jacqueline, tell us what you do. So I do lots of things. I guess I can kind of backtrack if that's okay. So I am in social services full-time. So I work as a housing stability worker. And a lot of people might be like, well, what the heck does that mean? I work with the very vulnerable populations in my area, which is in Ontario, Canada. A lot of them are struggling with addiction and mental health and legal involvement, but they also have homelessness concerns. They're either already homeless or they're at risk of being homeless. We provide a rent supplement. Essentially, for anybody that knows social assistance, they don't give near enough to live off of. So we provide a bit more financial support for the rent so that they can actually sustain and maintain their housing, whatever we can find them. And so I do that full-time and then part-time, I'm also a DSW. So for those that don't know, that's a developmental service worker. So I work in a group home through an organization, but the group home has six adults that all have varying abilities and capabilities. And it's mostly a lot of physical care, a lot of medical supports, medications, that kind of thing. So that's kind of where I'm at professionally. And then to jump into... Being a fellow podcaster, so I started a podcast called Doom to Bloom Podcast, which if anybody knew me from the very beginning, it was called the I Am Podcast. So I recently went through a revamp, I guess, and made things look a little prettier and sound a little nicer. But the reason that I had originally started this podcast was 
to go alongside my full-time job in kind of the height of the pandemic. In my opinion, the world kind of falling apart for those couple of years. I noticed professionally that there was a lot of increases in suicides, increases in overdoses, a lot of decreases in funding for mental health and addiction and just housing supports. And then alongside that, I also noticed that there was just lack of supports in general and lack of conversations. There was also a lot of overdoses. Mental health increased significantly. Addiction increased significantly. And not necessarily just for the specific folks that I work with on social assistance, but kind of across the board, I noticed it. I can also say that, I mean, my mental health kind of deteriorated during the pandemic with lockdowns and isolations and all of that kind of stuff. So that was the reason the podcast started was basically just, you know, to talk about all the things that I noticed and raise awareness of mental health addiction that kind of everybody struggles and it's not just one stereotyped group that does. And then my other hope was in having all of these conversations and raising this awareness to work to break down the stigma. And I feel like that's a super big goal and it's going to take a long time, but that's kind of the pathway I'm on for the podcast. And so with the podcast, I do solo episodes. So the very first one, I think it's titled I Am Me. I share my story, my struggles, my experiences personally with mental health. And I can get into that if you want, Heather, but that one kind of kickstarted the episode with my story. And then consecutive ones, I have guests that share their experiences. Some of them are professionals in the field. Some of them have more personal experience. Some of them share both. Some of them share more tips and tactical supports and resources. So some of them share you know, the benefit of nature or the benefit of exercise or the benefit of therapy. So there's all kinds of different things. And I think my opinion was that I wanted a wide range of different individuals to be a guest for a couple reasons. The big one was because mental health and addiction, they affect everybody, right? Every, every age, every race, every culture, every gender, every everything. It, it doesn't discriminate. It, just, it affects everybody. So I wanted to be able to kind of encompass that as living proof on the podcast. But I also wanted people to realize that, you know, even if you are a social worker or you are a, I don't know, a CEO or you're really high up that you can still struggle and that's okay. Because I think there's the stigma of, well, I don't think I know that there's the stigma that you know, only lower class or people in poverty or people on social assistance struggle. And that's just not the truth. So that's kind of the heart of where the podcast is. And we're just keeping the conversation going. You're up there keeping it moving, as I'm known to say. I love it. Yeah. Keeping it moving. Keeping it moving up there in Canada. I might coin that with you. I think that you and I have a lot in common in working in social services for is one of them. And being a podcaster is one of them. I know back, I'm about to age myself, but when I got my degree in social work over 20 years ago, 75% of social workers were from, I'm going to use an old term, dysfunctional families. And 35% were struggling from or would struggle 
at some point with substances. So back 20 years ago, what was the definition of dysfunctional families? Because I feel like it might vary from then to now, possibly. Oh, oh, I'm sure it does. I think back then it probably had, I don't know if you're familiar with the ACE score, but it's a it's a way for mental health providers to determine how high risk you are from a dysfunctional standpoint. I think to gauge a way to help you or know how to approach. So my ACE score is pretty high. So I think that was probably used. And I started out like in school learning about like child protective services. So I think a lot of that was based on statistics from children who had been removed from the home or were in the foster care system. Now there's a lot more boys to these like dysfunctional on on like a holistic level and not just pigeonholed for folks who are in the, I'm using air quotes, the system. So even with that really old statistic that share that shows that, you know, when you mentioned social workers who, you know, we're at risk for it and then CEOs, you know, doctors, lawyers, it doesn't really matter what socioeconomic status you have or what title you have. These things are universal. That's one of the reasons I wanted a wide range of guests because I wanted to get that across that it's not just one specific category of people or one specific set of population. Yeah. In an alcohol-free support community that I'm in, I used to talk about, and I need to talk about this again, like our curbs, the set of the curb we're on, we're all on the curb sometimes. It just might look a little different. And that kind of goes back to you you working with the unsheltered or unhoused population or folks who are at risk to be, you know, you'll you'll think about a person who is unsheltered and you have this mental picture in your head that comes with that. And that's just not true. It's like we're all about a paycheck away, maybe a missed paycheck or two from being homeless ourselves, you know, who work and supposedly make a living wage. So I appreciate what you do. What led you to do work in human services? So I have mental health diagnosis myself. So I struggled with and still do anxiety and depression, which are fairly common, I think, across the board. But I've also had lots of, I guess we'll say traumatic experiences, which kind of led me to a lot of therapy, a lot of different modalities in terms of treatment. So I did a lot of therapy in my teenage years up until now in my 20s. I've started to kind of experiment more with the natural holistic type modalities. And so that really kickstarted an interest into, you know, diet and sleep and exercise and just living healthier and better. But all of my struggles led me to have an interest in not wanting others to feel how I felt when I was going through the struggles. I didn't, I didn't, and I don't want people to easier said than done, think that they're alone in the struggle because everybody struggles with one thing or another. It's just whether it's verbalized or shown or if it's kept under the rug. So that was a big, big part of going into social services was I didn't want others to fall out the wayside. I also, from a super young age, kind of took on a caregiver role, in my opinion, with my younger siblings. My 
mom was married to their dad, so he would have been my stepfather at the time, but he very much was married to his job instead of to my mom, I guess, for kind of to put that into perspective. And so I took on in my later teenage years, I took on a lot of the extracurricular babysitting kind of household stuff. So I knew that caregiving was kind of some type of avenue I wanted. I just didn't know maybe what type of avenue. And then, so when I was in high school and there's the electives that you can take, um, aside from, you know, the mandatory classes, I thought, well, maybe I'll try social services. Maybe I'll try the psychology classes, the sociology. I forget what the family one was called, but it was the one where you get to take home a baby. (laughs) And I don't know if you guys have that in the States. So there was that class. And then in, I think it was a sociology class in grade 11, they slowly opened us up to all of the system flaws, which led me to have an interest in the legal system and the failures of the legal system. So then that led me into pursuing a bachelor degree at university. So I have a bachelor degree of social development studies, which essentially is right underneath bachelor of social work. And then I also have a minor in law. And then when I was in my final year of high school in grade 12, I had a significant loss in my life. And Nicole passing away was very sudden and unexpected. And it was actually the result of a murder. So it wasn't even like an accident or a, I don't know, like a sickness. It was intentional by the person. And so that really transformed my life in multiple ways for the good and for the bad at the time. But that ultimately was the reason that I wanted to work in social services, knowing that, you know, how I felt, what I experienced, I wanted to be able to pass along my insights and my knowledge to be able to support those that were also feeling or thinking or experiencing what I did. Thank you for sharing that. I'm really sorry about your friend. Thank you. I lost a really good friend by, he was murdered and I was about 19 when that happened. And I remember thinking, you know, when we're 19, we think we're untouched, unscathed by... Invincible? Invincible, immortal. And I think that shape, that experience also shaped the trajectory of my major in studies in some way as well. I think that folks who are in the helping profession usually have some type of catalytic event that mm-hmm. leads them to to social work or you know, social services or human services. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for what you do. So I graduated over 20 years ago and started in the 90s. Mercy, that was a while ago. But <laughs> I noticed it was over the course of 20 years. It's pretty thankless. You don't get, I mean, your clients will thank you sometimes, you know, but like you're, I, it, this is just my experience. It's not about me. I just want to share that I I know what it's like to feel underappreciated in the field. So thank you for what you. Well, thank you. It's a emotionally exhausting field, but I think on the other side of that, it's very rewarding. And to know that I make a difference and anybody in the field also makes a difference daily, I think is a big factor that keeps me in the field. Yeah. Right. Like knowing, oh man, I could throw so many examples at you, but knowing that you know, buying one of my clients a meal so that they had a hot meal that day or taking them to an apartment viewing, sitting with them outside, 
their tent, like just having the conversations and just continually showing up for them, saying, you know, whatever you need, I'll do my best to get it for you. I'll try to connect you to the services that you need if I can't provide it. Like it just, it's, it really truly is the little things. And I think a lot of us forget that when we're not maybe at our low point or the lowest of lows. And I, time and time again, I will always tell my clients on my caseload at my full-time job that, you know, I'm not here for the money. I don't know if it's the same in the States, but in Canada, it's so underpaid as well. And so I always tell them, I'm not here for the money. I need a paycheck to live, but that that is not the reason I'm in the field, right? And I always also remind them that, you know, alongside not being here for the money, because there is no money in the field. I have also struggled and I understand where they are at and where they're coming from rather than, you know, because there's always going to be that person, in my opinion, in the field who is there because they think they can climb the ladder and, you know, they get a bachelor, they get a master, they get a PhD and they think they can make all this money. And they're not necessarily there because something in their life led them on that trajectory or, you know, whatever that case is. But I always tell them like, you know, I've struggled with substance. I've struggled with my mental health. I've struggled with relationships. I have all of these different struggles, fortunately and unfortunately, in my back pocket that I I can connect with you and I can relate to you on a different level. And I always say, just because I'm quote unquote the professional in like our situation, that doesn't mean anything, right? Like I'm still a human. I've still experienced what I've experienced. I still struggle to this day, whether I'm a professional or not. And so I always remind them that because at the end of the day, it really is the small things. Like I said, it's the small meal. It's getting them a fresh pair of socks. It's getting them the shoes. It's showing up day after day being like, hey, you know, the housing market sucks. The government system sucks, but I'm still here and we're still, we're trying to break those cycles, right? We're trying to work through those systems and we'll do it together. I've met a lot of folks in our field and I don't know very many people that do it for the money. Unless you're really high up, maybe. Maybe. But even then, I'm, I'm, I don't know. It, I think by the time I like worked my way up, so to speak, if I'm being honest, I was so burnt out from the first 15 years that I knew in some way I just didn't have the good. I still couldn't fight the good fight, but I couldn't beat the streets doing it. Meaning, you know, going door to door looking for folks, trying to beg people to get in my car or not jump out. Or like, you know, I was just so burnt out because I did not realize the value in taking care of myself, which is a total oxymoron, but it's true. And once I started taking better care of myself, I noticed I was better at it, but it's still hard to come back from, like I said, 15 years of burnout. I mean, it's really, I don't know how much rest I need, but I don't have enough. It also goes to like having boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. Boundaries within ourselves, boundaries within private practice or the organization we work at or the whatever we're at, whether we're in social services like us or we're not, there's still that boundary that needs to be had when we're trying to support others and support ourselves at the same time. I know that's something that I've really, I guess I'm going to say struggled with in the beginning of my career, but I'm slowly getting better at that. But the one thing I do struggle with knowing that, you know, for a lot of the clients on my caseload, I really am the only 
support or safe person or safe space that they have. And so to be able to, you know, turn my work phone off, turn my computer off, say, I'll see you tomorrow. And who knows what could happen over that 12 hour period, right? That I just really struggle with, I guess I can turn off all the technology. I can clock out of work, but mentally I'm still wondering, you know, so-and-so is unhoused and currently living in a shelter, but very vulnerable. Like, are they going to get assaulted? Are they going to get robbed? You know, are they going to overdose? Like all of these thoughts and they just kind of linger in my mind, I guess, so to speak. It's hard. I got to be known as the queen of boundaries and I used to teach classes at my job related to boundaries. The boundary I had yet to conquer is like, it's hard to not let these scenarios pop in your head at like 9 p.m. when you're trying to sleep. Or or they wake you up at 3 a.m.? And how do you fix that? Like, I I've, I've still haven't figured that out yet other than like, you know, you try to exercise and, and do the things. And I, I've studied some dream analysis lately, but... I think that speaks to like, we can push it away all we want, but if it's showing up in our dreams, that's probably a clear indicator that we need a day off. Or more than one day. So tell us where folks can uh, find you on social media and remind us the name of your podcast. So the podcast is called Doom to Bloom podcast. It is, like I said, originally it was the I Am podcast. So if there's any OGs out there that were listening or knew of me before, still the exact same platforms. I just did a name change and a logo change, but I can be found on Facebook. The Facebook page is just Doom to Bloom Podcast. The Instagram page is at the Doom to Bloom Podcast 2022. That was the year I created it. I am also on LinkedIn just as my name, Jacqueline G, G-E-E, instead of Doom to Bloom. I am also on TikTok, which is, I still need that boot camp, Heather, but I'm on TikTok and I'm, I'm learning it, but it is Doom period Bloom period pod, just because I guess they wouldn't let me have enough characters to be able to actually put it. But I will also definitely send you all the links, Heather, in case they don't work for whatever reason, just verbally typing it in. And where else am I at, Heather? I think that's it. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much. And thank you for just giving me the platform to be able to share all of these conversations that need to be had. And for, I think you're one of the OGs, Heather. You've been, you've been following along for quite a while and we actually connected on Instagram. So I have a a deep appreciation for you, for sure. Thank you, dear. Same. Thank you for listening to this episode of Living My Breastless Life. Head over to Instagram and follow According to HPG to stay connected to the show. Go get your mammograms.